0: Kent Garrett, welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. We entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as blacks and African-Americans. Our guest is Eddie Cole. He is Associate Professor of Higher Education and History at UCLA and author of the award-winning book, The Campus Color Line, College Presidents, and the Struggle for Black Freedom. I'm joined by 19 of my Harvard classmates.
1: Good morning, Eddie. Uh, I'm in Pasadena, California, uh, environmental lawyer, spent some years in the Peace Corps in Cusco, Peru, worked for the federal government, for an oil company, for the state government, for a nonprofit, uh, et cetera. So kind of an eclectic background. Okay. And one of the classmates of uh, 1963. I, I'm Peter Lusavoy. I live up in New Hampshire and am an editor and writer. And I'm actually in the class of '64, so I'm considerably younger than the rest <laughs> of the group.
0: That's why you look so young, right? I get it. I get it. <laughs> David.
1: David Allen. Uh, I conquered Massachusetts an ancient class of 63. Uh, so pleased and proud to be able to say, along with Jerry, and eclectic, very eclectic background, business, academics, uh, activism in the recent years, quite looking forward to the discussion today.
2: Uh, I'm actually older than the rest of you. I was originally class of 62, but they threw me out after my freshman year. And uh, when I came back, my punishment was that I had to room with Kent. uh, (laughs) But uh, It was an exciting time and I've spent most of the time since then doing land conservation and climate change work. Okay.
1: Peter Grille. Um, I was originally class of 63, but didn't graduate until 65. But I'm really no younger than any of the rest of you. Um, I live in the town of Harvard not far from David, who's in Concord. Um, And I grew up in Japan and have spent most of my life in uh, nonprofits having to do with cultural exchanges and other sorts of activities between Japan and America. Looking forward to today's talk. Doug. Uh,
3: Hi, Doug Shapiro. Uh, I live in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. Um, I retired about seven years ago from uh, doing clinical drug trials on new pain medications at uh, Janssen and Janssen Research, which is uh, part of the uh, Johnson and Johnson uh, Umbrella Corporation. Uh, And I've been calling in, uh, like most of the rest of us, to these Zooms weekly now for, what is it, 86 or 87 weeks. Uh, An amazing achievement.
0: (laughs) No, this is, we're up to 98. This will be 99 today.
4: Wow.
0: Yeah. So 99. Whoa. Alden, uh, Alden
2: Briscoe, same class as other people. And I really appreciate the fact that Spencer Jordan at is here because uh, he makes the rest of us seem young. <laughs> we'll get
0: to him, we'll get to him. Okay, Marcy. Um
1: I'm in charge of a massive archives project in New York City spanning many decades um, of invaluable history to prevent that history from being rewritten by special interests who want bad policies today.
5: George Jones, again, class of
4: 1963. I'm currently living in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I'm thrilled to be alive. (laughs) Dorothy.
6: Yeah, me too. I'm thrilled to be alive. (laughs) Thanks for reminding me. (laughs) <laughs> Class of 63, uh, graduated, joined the Harlem Action Group in Harlem in the summer of 64, stayed uh, on that same track for the rest of my life, um, lived in Harlem for 24 years, started the Youth Action Program, which turned into Youth Build, which now has spread around the mm. world as a program for young people who have left high school without a diploma, who grew up in poverty, who are looking for a way to uh, reclaim their lives, rebuild their communities, and become leaders for the future. And I, uh, I find that totally uh, satisfying and joyful because the passion that has been locked in the poorhouse is getting liberated, and it has a lot of power. Okay, Spencer.
0: Uh, hello, I'm from the class of
5: '61. <laughs> oh my God. I don't know who you all are, but I find myself here and I'm enjoying it immensely. <laughs> all right. Hamp. Hampton Howell,
7: frustrated poet,
4: <laughs>
7: class of 63, Nashville, Tennessee, and ready to uh, uh, hear you give us new relevance, Eddie Cole, in uh, uh, college Today and that it's that it's not an oppressive tool of the of, of the upper classes. Yeah. <laughs> Susan,
6: mm. a retired library director, uh, class of '63, Rochester, New York, now heavily embroiled in local democratic politics. Okay, Liz. Hi, I'm Liz Mori. Um, also, class of '63. Uh, currently living in Tacoma Park, although I claim uh, nativity in Southern California. I really feel like I'm a Southern Californian. I'm an almost completely retired clinical psychologist and uh, also am uh, doing my best to kind of find out about my ancestors who happened to be significant enslavers in Charlottesville, Virginia, and uh, to be able to connect with the descendants of uh, people that they enslaved.
2: Hey, Jeff. Hi, uh, Jeff Fox, class of '63. Um, well, after years of uh, teaching and writing about sociology, I'm now working on fiction. I'm. Uh, I live in in southern
0: Spain. All right. And Professor Cole, welcome.
8: Thank you so much for coming on. And uh, thank you all for the introductions. Uh, what a pleasure uh, to join you all today and talk a little bit about my book and um, and to meet you and to hear about all the places you are and where you've been and what you've done. Um, and you know, nice to be uh, among you. Genuinely uh, appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Uh, so my book, The Campus Cuddle Line, which you may see the red cover uh, back above my head, uh, the Campus Cutter Line College Presidents in the Struggle for Black Freedom it was published by Princeton University Press in 2020, so it's coming up on its third birthday uh, for a book. And really, it's a history of how college presidents and university chancellors shaped racial policies and practices, both in higher education and beyond. And so, some of the backstory to how I, how long I spent working on the book, I spent about three years. Uh, traveling across the country, going to different archives. So I appreciate the boxes in the background. (laughs) Uh, I spent a lot of time at different universities, about 30 institutions, actually. I went to about 30 college campuses across the United States, um, in the Northeast, across the Midwest, out here on the West Coast, across the U.S. South, both private and public institutions, uh, large and small, uh, you know, institutions that we consider well-known and then some smaller regional commuter campuses, uh, like, say, a University of Memphis, which was Memphis State College or a temple, uh, which was a public institution um, in, in Philly. And, and then historically black colleges, as well as either all white or predominantly white institutions. So it's a nice range of institutions looking at university leaders and the back story to how I came to even write the book is that we're pretty familiar with a lot of histories around student activism and we can go back to writing about different forms of student activists uh, really even into the colonial period. I mean one of my one of the readings I assigned in week 1 or week 2 of my history of higher education class looks at the the food fights at Harvard. Um, in the 1700s. And so students have rebelled since there were students on campus. And oftentimes to use a, a LA, a Hollywood experience, college presidents always make a cameo appearance in those histories, right? <laughs> the students are upset and the president says something in response, right? So historians have always mentioned presidents, always mentioned chancellors, especially when we talk about the mid 20th century, the 50s, the 60s, which you all are familiar with in the 70s. But, you know, I wanted to know more about what these presidents were doing, not just reactive to activism, but what were they doing in a proactive sense, even if it was quietly behind closed doors. And that's what the book came to be. And so it's organized in seven chapters. The first chapter focuses on uh, the presence of Black colleges and universities and how they had to navigate Jim Crow. And so, both sort of lead an institution uh, like a Black college alongside navigating. Uh, white power brokers, either elected officials or wealthy donors, et cetera. And then we move from there into the next, the second chapter of the book talks about the role that college presidents, university chancellors played in shaping federal housing policy, which is not something I expected to find when I started writing this book, but it emerged from the archives. And so college presidents spending a lot of time in the 1950s in the White House during the Eisenhower administration. In the Oval Office, um, making pleas to the President of the United States, as well as lobbying to Congress, and having a significant uh, change to federal housing policy that favored universities, that allowed them to uh, ultimately uh, have federal support around property acquisition that displaced uh, dozens, thousands of Black households in cities across the United States. Third chapter picks on my current employer, the University of California. (laughs) Uh, The third chapter looks at how a large university system can be so complex and how chancellors and presidents were part of really creating the bureaucracy of resistance, what I call in the third chapter. How can a place get so big that students just don't know what to do when they're trying to create change? So the third chapter focuses on that. I get to chapter four and five and I do a sort of back to back with Alabama and Mississippi. Chapter four is focused on Mississippi. Chapter five, focus on Alabama and Mississippi, which, again, you all, many of you being class of 63. Uh, you all were at Harvard in 1962 when James Meredith um, enrolled at the University of Mississippi and the racial violence that, that unfolded after his enrollment. And so I look at the chancellor there and how there was a struggle for autonomy to lead a public institution between the fighting between Ross Barnett, who was the governor of Mississippi, and President Kennedy, who was you know in D.C. and how the chancellor was in between that, and then I give sort of a mirror example looking at Alabama that wanted to make sure in 1963 it it did not become Mississippi, and so how the president at the University of Alabama used Mississippi to uh, have uh, to reduce racial violence, even though it was a lot of sort of uh, theater around Governor George Wallace standing in the schoolhouse door, there wasn't racial violence at the University of Alabama during its second attempt at desegregation because there was a failed attempt in 1956. And then I finished up the book, um, sort of in your territory. I went to Central New Jersey and hung out at Princeton and got into the archives there and looked at President Robert Goheen and raised a question around free speech and race, because that governor in Mississippi that I mentioned in chapter four actually was invited to speak at Princeton in 63. And so there are a lot of questions around free speech and race. And then I finished the book looking at the origins of affirmative action and how college presidents were active in shaping affirmative action policies and practices uh, that are drastically different from what we think about today when people say affirmative action. And again, so that's the book in seven chapters and gives you just a little snippet, a little flavor around uh, how it's organized and the different roles that different types of college presidents played in shaping numerous racial policies and practices, both on their campuses and beyond. So that's the sort of the quick version. If we had to take a little stroll a couple blocks down the street, I, I welcome all questions.
1: Okay, Jerry, let me uh, talk about housing for just a minute. Uh, I grew up uh, in the Black area of Washington, D.C., and we had urban renewal, which we called Negro removal. Uh, I was also chair of a small college in Arizona, and as we expanded our student body, we needed more land to build more housing, more facilities, et cetera. Uh, That was an all-white community, and so we didn't get a pushback in terms of, quote, Negro removal. But I'm just curious how... How much was the conflict between the universities and the surrounding neighborhoods in terms of their ability to expand? And I know Harvard's had a hell of a hard time in Cambridge. I know that. But I'd like to hear you speak a little bit more about that.
8: Yeah, yeah. it is. It was a significant amount of pushback. And, and Harvard is actually, as you mentioned, uh, tied into this story uh, at its origin point. So I'll take you to Chicago first, and then I bring in Harvard's president um, at the time. And who was also the president when you all were there. (laughs) And so, uh, you know, in Chicago, post-World War II, the the common narrative around higher education after World War II is there's a GI Bill in 1944 and there's a rapid explosion in colleges getting larger. Uh, Enrollments triple, if not quadruple in a lot of places. But the University of Chicago was actually the opposite Uh, post 19. Forty-five. The enrollment at the University of Chicago actually got to a low that it hadn't been since nineteen nineteen. So while most colleges were getting larger, University of Chicago was getting smaller, and that's largely because the second wave of the Great Migration, where millions of Black Americans leave the segregated South and look for a better life in the Northeast Midwest. And out on the West Coast, and a lot of them land in Chicago, but when they get to Chicago, they find similar racist practices around housing. So they are limited neighborhoods to where these Black people can move into. Woodlawn, which is south of the University of Chicago, which is located in Hyde Park, and Washington Park, uh, which is to the west of the University of Chicago, uh, are two predominantly Black areas. And there's encroachment. Those areas are getting overcrowded, and they get closer, and they spill into Hyde Park. And so what the chancellor at the University of Chicago does um, at this point is he calls a meeting with five other college presidents. Lawrence Kipton is the chancellor at UChicago. He calls a meeting with the president of Harvard, MIT, Yale, Columbia, and University of Pennsylvania. And the six of them have a meeting in 1957. And that's when they coordinate their, their efforts to actually lobby um, in Washington, DC, and get the change to where there's two federal dollars earmarked to college and university for every $1 they spend toward urban renewal and the displacement and the expansion of these campuses. And the pushback is so significant. Um, in fact, there's a uh, there's an urban uh, urbanly report from Chicago in 1958 um, that finds that two-thirds of the people who had been displaced were Black. And ultimately, it says that it's not that Black people did not care about community development, but you couldn't rightfully displace them without addressing the issue of housing discrimination. And the universities acquiring properties actually took over properties that discriminated in housing, but simply the university owned it, but didn't manage it. And so that caused a number of protests among students in the late 50s and the early 1960s and became a national issue. In the case of Chicago, the president during a sit-in in the president's office, which was the first of its kind, north of the Mason-Dixon line, actually uh, tried to go do a donor event in in San Francisco during the sit-in in in the president's office and Berkeley students in solidarity with the University of Chicago students met the president upon arrival in San Francisco. And so so there was no running from it. It truly became a national issue and college presidents were at the heart of that.
1: Thank you very much.
8: Great question. Thanks for sharing.
2: One of the people who was involved in that sit-in was Bernie
4: Sanders
8: yes sure was <laughs>
1: mm, wow yep
8: it was mentioned in the book in chapter two as being one of the <laughs> one of the protesters <laughs> in that sit in the president's office
1: um,
3: uh, yep. go ahead oh uh, this is doug doug yeah yeah, I just wanted to to, to, to make a comment. Um, one of the things that, that kind of surprised me about your presentation today and the orientation, the focus on college presidents, is that in my readings in the past about uh, admissions policies uh, at various colleges and so forth, um, it always—I I came away with the impression that that the, the, the people that were really making changes were people at the level of the deans. Mm-hmm. And if you you read, you know, this big book by Jerome Carabell called *Chosen*, which is a history, hidden history of admission, and exclusion at Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, or even Kent uh, Kent's book on uh, the last Negroes at Harvard. My recollection is, and maybe this is just me focusing on things that interest me, I don't know, but my recollection is that the the people that seem to be making the real changes at the kind of level that, that makes a difference in terms of admissions policies, at least, were people at the
8: level of the deans, and I wondered if you would just comment on that. What what a great question! Uh, th- thanks for uh, asking that, and and I certainly have my own copy of the Chosen uh, somewhere behind me. Um, so I'll, I'll give you an example of Princeton because uh, you know this. <laughs> you all, particularly class of '63, um, you know the number of Black students admitted at Harvard actually put a lot of pressure on President Robert Goheen at Princeton because Princeton had historically struggled. So it had so many difficulties um, in getting black students. And so I'll take it in 1963 and show how the president at Princeton actually was sort of a key figure in changing admission practices on that campus. So the actual execution came from the director of admissions and academic deans. But there was some director from the president. And so when Ross Barnett, the segregationist governor from Mississippi, was invited to speak at Princeton in the fall of 63, President Goheen uh, actually issued a statement condemning um, sort of uh, what Barnett had stood for, especially the previous year regarding desegregation at the University of Mississippi. But he also did not, say, put pressure on the student organization to ban him from speaking. So he had adhered, adhered to free speech practices, but let Barnett come. And the tension was at that moment, Princeton was trying to recruit, actively recruit as the as the, uh, as brochure said, search for Negro applicants, um, trying to catch up with Yale and Harvard. And in that case, Goheen gave a directive directly to the uh, director of admissions around actively seeking more Black students and writing a number of zingers, like strong letters in response to Princeton alumni who were from the South or resided in the South who were condemning Princeton actively looking to recruit uh, Black students, because I don't know how familiar you are with sort of Princeton's longer history, but at one point, half of his enrollment, the students were from Southern states. And so it had a strong alumni base located in the South, a huge donor base located in the South, and a lot of those alums were uh, in complete disagreement with um Goheen's charge to actively recruit more black students. And so, yes, it came down to academic deans in a lot of ways, but in this instance, especially in chapter six, as I demonstrated in the book, Robert Goheen actually is a clear, um, um, clear person in terms of influencing admissions practices at Princeton. So the president did have a lot of say-so in a lot of these instances, especially because leading the institution and what it meant from a broader competitive standpoint in the case of Princeton, competing alongside Harvard and Yale.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, George Allen.
4: Hi, Uh, I I, I regret I was not able to uh, be here right at the beginning. Uh, I also live in Los Angeles and I have a son who teaches at USC and two grandsons who graduated from USC. And I wanted to ask you, Uh, Because I know USC has made some efforts and says it's made efforts about uh, trying to be of assistance to, and uh, I don't know if urban renewal would be an accurate term, but to to try to uh, improve the uh, neighborhood to the south of it, which is largely Black, Uh, although I think now, uh, increasingly Latino as well as Black. So I wonder if you you could uh, comment on that and and what you know about what is happening there because I honestly don't know, and I'd be curious. You know.
8: Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Uh, so, <laughs> I always like to give this. You know, I'm I'm at UCLA, and UCLA, we're surrounded by. Brentwood to our west, uh, Bel Air to our north, and Beverly Hills to our east. <laughs> and we're located in Westwood, and we're the, we're the public university. And then USC, uh, the private institution, is uh, located in <laughs> South Central, uh, which is a historically Black area. Um, and USC is surrounded by, you know, a, a gate, is gated uh, on all sides. And so I, even the symbolism of uh, the distance, the physical distance, even though it's closely located in South Los Angeles. Um, it is in many ways um, at a distance from South Los Angeles. And I, I think um, from talking point standpoint, USC is saying a lot of the right things in terms of being a member of the community and trying to welcome that part of Los Angeles and truly partner with Los Angeles and build upon um you know its proximity. But USC is expanding, it's built the village uh, so it has its own target on campus um it's got its own sort of retail area on campus but I don't see a lot of back and forth between the community and USC itself and so I think USC has a lot of work left to do um in the same way that UCLA does has a lot of work left to do and that's something that I would be critical about the two large universities here in Los Angeles uh, between USC and UCLA Uh, we're at a distance either physical distance or a symbolic distance being gated uh, from a lot of uh, Black Los Angeles, as well as, as you mentioned, the, the racial dynamics around the Latinx Los Angeles. And so I think we we talk a lot um, about sort of being connected, but there's a lot more work to do.
4: But USC and US, uh, UCLA, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, both have very significantly large in comparison to national norms of, of uh uh, black undergraduates and graduate students. Would that be correct, or am I wrong about that?
8: No, no. I mean, I can't. I can't speak for USC. I think you. I think USC has a larger number of black students, but UCLA, particularly our undergraduate enrollment, I think we're hovering around three to three point five percent of black students. So we do not have a significant number of black students at UCLA, um, not in terms of uh, undergraduate enrollment.
4: Mm-hmm.
8: Not at all. And for those of you familiar with California in 1996, that was Proposition 209, which ultimately uh, struck down affirmative action um, in the state of California. So there aren't formal affirmative action practices among universities in California. And so there's actually been a decline since 1996 in the percentage of undergraduate Black students at UCLA. Mm, wow.
4: USC percentages are Asian, 19.3%. Black African American five point eight percent Hispanic fifteen point three yeah. White Caucasian twenty four point eight International twenty six point <coughs> <USC> C <coughs> breakdown.
8: Yep, yep. So that that's that's not <laughs> much better than us. They've got five percent
4: uh, no, black
8: students, and, and and we're less than that.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. H- Hamp.
8: Yes. Uh...
7: I just want to share, Eddie, I bristled a little bit when you compared Princeton with uh, Harvard, because I always think of Princeton as so conservative, despite the fact that I'm impressed that they have this massive street this tradition of massive streaking on the the campus. I, I don't know if they still have it or not. Uh, the, but the, uh, you, you helped me understand their, uh, uh, background with all the conservative, yeah. uh, students there. And I, I, I appreciate that. Uh, my, my time at Harvard was very significant for me. Um, and I, I re- and some of the people that are, that are here that I knew then it's, it, uh, it, it's joyful to be uh with you uh at the same time i think there's an increasing uh i, I i've been hit hitching on on that uh in, period of intellectual development the rest of my life and uh uh i think it's significant that there's fewer and fewer people that are across the united states that are even prepared to go to a a uh, institution where they can learn a lot and, and uh you know it's just getting to be more and more of a refined tradition of 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 going to college and i i don't understand what if there's any massive ways that that we can intervene in, in that
8: yeah yeah well um <laughs> Uh, a couple a couple things there um and and if i'm not mistaken you said you're based in nashville correct yes okay yeah yeah i was I was just there i, I spoke there on tuesday um and, and uh so how can we sort of change this sort of get more people to college and more opportunity you know
7: or or something that's the equivalent of college maybe college is a outmoded mm-hmm. a idea but 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 something where people can grow in some of the same ways
8: yeah 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 well <laughs> that's that's a, that's that's a big time question and um i think we're we see the uh, politics right now i can't help you know you i listen to your question and i think about sort of where we are politically and so the in how education and education broadly defined, not just college, but education broadly defined is really at the forefront of this sort of political battle that's unfolding um, in this moment. And so we've got to think creatively about um, sort of explaining to the broader community about the power of ideas and learning and why we must do everything we can to protect ideas and give people the opportunity to engage in intellectual thought uh, again not just in a formal sense like you said on college campuses but how can we have this in communities right how can we make sure that I, I felt like we saw a brief moment of this at the beginning of covid where people had book clubs and communities were organizing and people wanted to read more books with Going off the shelves. What talk about for me? What a time for my book to be published, like in twenty twenty. Uh, people were reading books left and right, and I think we've got to find a way to hold on to that sort of moment. Woke power. Yeah, I mean, I mean, <laughs> and and we've got to uh, think about what that means because what I see happening in terms of sort of formal politics and what's happening in communities. It's really this battle over ideas and trying to sort of shape what people know and don't know. And there's something powerful about giving opportunity, giving people the opportunity to learn um, at such a wide range of, you know, methods and spaces and places. And I think, you know, groups like this, this is wonderful. I'm glad you all do this on a regular basis over and over again. And we need more of this happening to where people can sort of, welcome in people and I'm happy to be in this space with you and I think about what what would it mean to bring in a group of teenagers into a conversation with you all because history is so important and understanding social context is so critical and getting and getting a chance to speak with you all across generations uh, will just be wonderful and sort of you know, ignite the way that they think about things, not just what they get in a formal classroom, but also so much to be learned outside of their classroom. And we've got to have more of that. We've got to push and do everything we can to have that kind of dialogue across generations.
0: Mm -hmm. Spencer. Uh,
8: Yes, Um,
5: this is a fascinating book. uh, uh, And your your research has been really marvelous. Thank you so much. uh, Yeah, what a topic. Uh, I, I, uh, I uh, in response to the uh, role of presidents, uh, uh, one of the uh, most uh, uh, stark examples of the power of presidents in, involved in uh, uh, the policies of, of race and uh, uh, in, uh, in the universities was, uh, was uh, Russell was uh, uh, I'm thinking of his poet uncle, uh, but it was uh, Abbott Lawrence Lowell, not James Russell. <laughs> but uh, was Abbott Lawrence Lowell uh, with his secret policy of uh, of uh, uh, of discrimination of uh, barring uh, blacks from uh, uh, the uh, the, uh, the dormitories, pre- freshman dormitories, which was just the beginning of an overall plan. Uh, that was to go on that included Jews and included homosexual, uh, we now say, uh, you know, uh, uh, LGBTQ people. And uh, uh, and it turns out that my dad was the guy who confronted him and turned the, uh, uh, the resulting two year uh, uh, fierce battle that hit the national press all over and uh, involved a whole uh, national alumni straw poll. Uh, uh, Voting for uh, continuing the president's policy, and in this case, the alumni over overpowered probably the most powerful president that uh, Harvard ever had. Uh, his grandfather being the founder of the industrial revolution with the Lowell Mills, and uh, uh, being a very powerful uh, family, uh, Lowell speaking. And so, uh, my my book was uh, on that was. Uh, uh, called the Dream Dancers, Volume One, which deals with that that uh, that whole. Uh, it ends with that whole episode, but begins back with the 1600s, with the uh, the the culture of that led to uh, uh, the situation in 1921.
8: Mm-hmm. Thank you for that comment and thank you for your, your kind words about my book and, and certainly um, and what you just shared with us is a perfect example of how uh, academic leaders have shaped <laughs> so much around not just campus policy but broader social policy for generations, even before the time period that I write about.
4: Mm-hmm.
6: Mm-hmm. Liz. Hi, Eddie. Um, So I have a couple of comments and questions. Uh, uh, So I am a uh, Radcliffe graduate because uh, Radcliffe started, I think, in 1879, you know, as this kind of adjunct and slowly things merged so that our class in 1963, when we graduated, we were the first graduates to have a Harvard diploma. Um, and I, I bring this up because when I was a freshman, so 1959, this was the first time that Radcliffe had a female president. It had never had a female president in all of its years. That's practically 100 years. And uh, as you can imagine, it made a difference to us. Um, she was a scientist. She was a, just, just a wonderful, wonderful person. Um, So it brings me to the uh, question A, which is uh, representation, because I'm assuming that uh, HBCUs probably have presidents who represent, you know, who look like the student body. Um, I don't know if you get past the HBCUs. Are you looking at any uh, college presidents who aren't white, who aren't mostly white male? Um, and I'd be interested in your comment about that. My other comment is, um, I'm uh, wondering if you look at the current batch of college presidents of those that you've kind of surveyed and so forth, where do you see the bright lights and why are they bright lights to you?
8: What, what a great um, what a great couple of questions. And, um, and yes, absolutely ditto to the to Radcliffe history also. Okay. Um, so, a couple of things there with the um, black college presidents. Let me add a little nuance to that. So during the time period that I study, uh, those two are almost universally men, right? Mm-hmm. And even mm-hmm. at Spelman, even at Spelman College, which is um, a famous um, black, historically black women's college, mm-hmm. uh, it did not get its first woman president until the nineteen eighties. So even at Spelman, right? So perfect example. And days, <laughs> right. right. So since then. Uh, There have been um, only women leading Spelman College, and that has made all the difference. I've got two older sisters that went to Spelman, and so they had a Black woman president, and so that made a big difference for them. In the case of the period that I was writing about in the book, you notice um, in the first chapter when I write about Black college presidents um, explicitly, uh, the first Black woman of a four-year institution is hired at Bennett College in Greensboro, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And Willoughby Player is hired in the mid-1950s and has a 10-year presidency there. And notably about uh, President Player as a Black woman president, um, she is present at Bennett when there's the famous February 1st, 19 sit-in at the Woolworths lunch counter in, in Greensboro where four uh, young black men who are freshmen at North Carolina A&T, the public historical black college, sit at the Woolworths. But soon, by the end of the week, there are students from all over Greensboro supporting the sit-in. And at the moment, students were allowed to organize at Bennett College because the black male president, the black man who was leading North Carolina A&T, knew he was leading a public institution. So it's a little bit more complex to have Black students organizing at your public institution that's dependent on state funds, especially an all-white state house. So uh, even having a Black woman president makes an immediate difference when we think about the sit-in movement of the 1960s because she was instrumental in allowing students to organize on the campus of Bennett, which was a private historically Black college. And so she was a leader when we think about how presidents engaged the broader student activism early, early 1960s. And then the rest of the book, when I look at the other institutions, you're correct. Those are white men leading those institutions, especially the time period that I'm writing about. Uh, you don't start to get a lot of women into leadership on those campuses until a few decades later. Now, fast forward to your, your second question about some <laughs> what are some bright lights today. That's a great question, Um, and I would, you know, in many ways, the presidency it was complex in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, In 2023, it seems like the impossible job. Uh, There's so much happening to lead a university, right? Between how fast social media happens. And, you know, you could be a president in a meeting and there's a tweet and before you're out of the meeting, you know, <laughs> your campus is going viral and you don't even know what's happening. Right. Um, and so when I think about bright lights today, I'm deeply intrigued by uh, Ruth Simmons, who, um, as you all may be familiar, uh, was um, president at Brown uh, for a while. But before that, um, had led uh, a number of institutions that had worked at Princeton in administration and Smith. Um, as well in Spelman College and most recently was the president of Prairie View A&M, a public land grant historically black college uh, outside of Houston. And so I'm really intrigued by um, her leadership because she has moved in very different types of institutional spaces, leading both historically black colleges as well as Ivy League institutions and uh, highly selective uh, other private institutions. And so uh, her leadership, uh, she is something that I like to consider a a bright light because uh, she's very straightforward in the sense of um, what she thinks is important and of value. And now as we think about how dozens of institutions are publicly reconciling their history with slavery, including Harvard, uh, that all starts with under her leadership at Brown University in the early 2000s. Oh. And so I would c- certainly consider uh, Ruth Simmons, uh, President Simmons, a, a, a bright light, who's on her way um, to Cambridge, uh, is going to be a special advisor uh, coming up on Harvard's efforts to collaborate with historically black colleges. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm.
9: John. Oh, hi. Sorry, I, was, I had to get someone to the airport and I got here late. Uh, but here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. But um, I wonder if you spoke about this earlier. Then just forget it. But I can recall that the, a lot of the black college presidents. I know you you talk about their delicate role when they they were progressive, but they they had to they had to deal with local politics. And uh, when I was reading about your book, uh, but a lot of the student bodies began to criticized and put a lot of heat on their presidents in the um, 60s and, and 70s. And I wondered whether you got into that where they, they sort of, the students had moved, you might say, uh, to, you know, to the left beyond the, a lot of the presidents and uh, really got on several of them pretty harshly.
8: Yeah. Yeah. Great question. And and I write about that in the opening chapter of the book in that oftentimes being the president of a black college or university during this time period meant sacrificing your personal reputation because of things you couldn't do publicly. But I write a lot about sort of presidential networks and how behind closed doors, uh, many of them were actually supportive of student activists. Um, And so the students may not have known it. But the presidents themselves uh, weren't all universally against the student activism. Let me give you a brief example. Um, and not to sort of take the thunder from the opening chapter of the book, but uh, uh, Martin David Jenkins is the president at Morgan State in Baltimore, pretty large his public historical Black college. And um, in early 1960, during peak moment in the sit-in movement, uh, he's invited to speak at Fort Valley State, which is a land-grant historically Black college in Georgia, Fort Valley, Georgia. And so the historical record doesn't show much or anything about Fort Valley's president being vocally supportive of student activism in the 60s. It's just not there. When you think about the archives, uh, that record just isn't there. He almost looks as if he's sort of in alignment with and, you know, catering to white elected officials. But Martin Jenkins is actually invited down from Baltimore and speaks at Fort Valley State and he gives a speech in support of the sit-ins. He tells students to stand up, right? So all of a sudden you see this sort of strategy among the black college presidents to where, hey, I'm gonna invite you to come to my campus to say what I can't say, because the governor of Georgia and the local neighborhood will run me out of here before the microphone's turned off, right? But you can come down and say it, and before they get wind of it in the evening newspaper, you're on your train back to Baltimore. And if anybody confronts me, I say, I did not know you were going to say that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, so, and so there's a lot of strategy that actually happens among Black presidents at Black colleges uh, during this time period. And so the book hopefully offers a little bit nuance uh, to how they were able to support students without publicly supporting students.
9: Ah, thanks. I, I want to remind people, Ross Barnett came to Harvard uh, at the same time he came to uh, Princeton. And there was a, a lot on campus of so whether he was going to be boycotted or kept from speaking or you know it was quite an occasion but he was a dud as a speaker he was a complete
0: (laughs) right right david uh Uh,
10: well thank you uh for this uh, book i've always wondered what college presidents do and i've spent my entire (laughs) life in universities and i think uh their public role and their dealing with alumni and their fundraising, which I imagine is a big part of uh, where, where the money comes from, either from a state legislature or from alumni or other benefactors probably uh, plays a large part. I wanted to make the distinction uh, or think about it and hear what you have to say between um, the admissions practices and even the faculty recruitment practices Uh, which uh, many universities are a matter of promoting meritocracy and the neighborhood uh, in which a uh, college like the University of Chicago or USC or something uh, or Columbia, for that matter, uh, deals with. So it uh, seems to me possible, and I don't know what your research would show, that a uh, college president or a university or college in general could be what we would think of as progressive on issues of uh, uh, recruitment and admissions and really uh, the other otherwise uh, in terms of uh, urban development and uh, relationships to the
8: community. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I love that question uh, because I often say this thing to where there's a university and then there are multiple universities within a university, right? So people have different experiences and different entities play different roles. And so your question really captures that nicely because you got sort of the recruitment and what it looks like on campus, but what does this campus mean to the adjacent community? And the book gets into that in a very interesting way because the time period that I write about Uh, You see campuses really for the first time in higher education history develop the infamous Office of Communications, right? The the public relations, the publicity aspect of higher education that really grows a lot post-World War II. And there are directors of public relations being hired all across the country. And part of what makes urban renewal happen, right, this sort of tense relationship between campus and community. Great example between Columbia and Harlem that tension starts to happen and it's bad publicity. And oftentimes people ask me, well, how are universities able to do something so blatant, blatant, right? That had, how were they able to do it? Well, they had good publicity and you know, you can hold some, some, some criticism toward media entities, but I've come across letters in the archives to where the University of Chicago pitches itself as a news story to NBC news. In the the 19 early 60s and says we're actually saving quote saving American cities right imagine the spin on it right instead of just urban blight and slum areas we're actually going to wipe that stuff out and build up we're saving American cities and so the publicity aspect of it shows how a university can do that and so while the community looks at an institution one way and says We've got a terrible, horrible relationship with that campus. They've displaced us for generations. I think so often about West Philly. I don't know how many of you've been to West Philadelphia lately, um, but you sort of think about, you think about sort of West Philadelphia and property values there now, and I can't help but think, wow, imagine if some black families still own those original homes that they had in the 30s and 40s. And fast forward to 2023, imagine what that means in terms of that family income, right? And so communities feel one way, but at the same time that universities are doing this sort of expansion and displacement, they're actively recruiting their first significant numbers in terms of Black students. They're hiring their first Black administrators. They're bringing on some of their first cluster hires in terms of a number of black faculty. And so the campus looks one way in terms of, look who we're hiring, look who we're admitting, but at the same time, the other university, which is the same institution, looks another way to the community.
3: Mm -hmm. Doug. Yeah. um, Can you please tell me how one goes about evaluating whether uh, a particular college or university Uh, is uh, admitting uh, fairly across all uh, racial divides and uh, so forth and so on or not. So for example, let's say a particular uh, group like Asian Americans happen to do particularly well on the standard sort of uh, SAT scores and all those kinds of of things. Uh, Do you expect that uh, universities need to have the same percentage of uh, Asian Americans on their campus as they are in the general population across the country, or is there some other way to evaluate this, or should we not be even worried about this?
8: Yeah, yeah, no that that's the that's the that's the big question that's made it all the way to the Supreme Court right, <laughs> right now, um, and you know. I'd I'm trying to I I think about that a lot. And um, part of something that one of the president says in the book um, is that one thing you have to do to treat treat some groups fairly is to um, actually treat them differently in some ways. Um, And so it makes me think about sort of the admissions practices. I don't know about sort of how you play the percentage game and I, I'm not even sure it was constitution in terms of quotas sort of matching things. I think that's universally disapproved almost, but uh, there's something to be said about thinking about what college admissions, especially when you think about affirmative action, what its original intent was versus how we think about it today. And one example is uh, when these college presidents were first considering race In a different way, I think they'd always consider race in admissions, but when they were first considering race in a different way with with admitting more non white students. There was an idea around how can we address the United States history of racial harm right, how can we give people an opportunity, which makes you know which addresses uh, the legacy of racism that we've had previously in admissions and. Now, the talking point seems to be more around how can we create a diverse student body sort to get representation across different groups. And those two things are really different, actually. And in July of 1963, there's a letter from the White House. President Kennedy actually writes to these university leaders and asks them to to provide leadership and coming up with, quote, special programs that can address the civil rights issues in the United States. Because why presidents become important is because if colleges and universities are supposed to have the people that can solve complex problems, presidents and chancellors were leading these institutions. And so the president of the United States even reaches out presidents uh, to college presidents around questions around admissions. And so I think the answer really comes down to what is the purpose in sort of in developing a sort of racially representative you know, ad, admitted class, and are you really addressing the, sort of the history that has <clears throat> disadvantaged different groups, or are you more addressing sort of an institution-centered focus around diversity and representation? Because what happened was campuses wanted publicity for how their student body looked, but that's a little bit different from the original intent around addressing broader societal issues and how history had disadvantaged different groups.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Alden. Um, These are just a couple of comments. Number one, um, for various reasons, I ended up in Jackson, Mississippi uh, in the spring of uh, uh, 1961, and I had a chance to talk to Ross Barnett. And John, I can tell you, he wasn't much better one-on-one than he was as a speaker. (laughs) Um, but um and i'm sure professor cole you you'd probably tell this story and i'm sure you tell it better than i but i think i read it in e franklin Frazier, but it may be somebody else of an hbcu president who really needed a science lab for his uh, university and he went to the white power structure and uh they said, fine, meet us at such and such an office. And of course, he went up in the freight elevator. And uh, when he got there, they said, uh, you know, this is Dr. Charles, something or other, with a PhD from the University of Michigan or somewhere. said, Charlie, uh, could you please uh, sing Old Man River before we go ahead? So he sang Old Man River and he, he got his, I don't know, million dollars or whatever for the science lab. And uh, not very long after that, the students were picketing him because he was an Uncle Tom.
8: Yeah, yeah, that that is um, a pretty common uh, critique that students used uh, toward black presidents. In fact, uh, the president of Southern University Baton Rouge um, was called "quote quote intellectual Uncle Tom." <laughs> um, so it was a common um, you know, description that students used toward uh, black presidents, but. It was truly the position that they were put in, in the sense of do, what do you have to do to keep this institution open, to provide an educational opportunity for Black students, which is oftentimes the only educational opportunity in the entire state for Black students, and wow. uh, you can imagine sort of the the personal humiliation uh, that came with. What does it do, and what can you? And, and again, it goes to my early comment in terms of how many of these presidents oftentimes sacrifice their personal reputation publicly. While doing a lot of things behind closed doors in the effort to advance and even keep the university or college open at the time, and um, I think it's a it's a it's a different moment in leadership that uh it's really hard to fathom um in many ways, but it certainly was not uh uncommon and that wasn't it was really prominent for leaders of public institutions, but in oftentimes small private black colleges also had to go to donors in New York or other places and um uh, make similar requests. And so uh, what what a what a difficult time in leadership. But certainly um, it it was it was the reality of the moment. And oftentimes some presidents may have done just that. Well listen
0: thank you thank you so much for coming on. It's been really great. And what should we be thinking about what's your next project or is there anything you could Tell us, you're working on next. No, or-
8: uh, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm, I'm happy to. Um, first of all, I'm writing uh, a a new history of American higher education right now, and um, it's focused on the role that Black intellectuals played in shaping uh, the American oh. academy. And so, I'll go back to the 1700s and work my way as close to the present as possible. And so I actually have to come to Cambridge and get into the archives there and do some some deep diving. But I want us to rethink American higher education, especially at this point, to where in many states uh, higher education is under attack. And just because it's focused on public institutions now, don't think that that won't also impact private institutions as well. And so I'm working on this history of um, American higher education, and broadly, you know, really my point is sort of a takeaway is that we know a lot about institutional history but we don't know as much about social history of institutions right we can talk about founding date and when a campus went from college to university or when a name change happened that's focused on the institution but we've got to also think about the social history of institutions because when we do that that's when we're talking about the people's history of institutions and when we understand that people have moved to and from these institutions that's when we're able to keep the real focus on higher education and understanding that this is about people. This is about learning. This is about real-life connections, putting people first instead of institutions. So thank you for the opportunity to chat with All you. Right, thank you. Uh, this, this has been an honor.
0: Okay, great. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. you. Yeah. That was UCLA Associate Professor Eddie Cole. His book is titled The Campus Color Line, College Presidents and the Struggle for Black Freedom. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple and Spotify or from wherever you get your podcast. Our podcast also streams on wioxradio.org every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.